3: Hey there, welcome to the Eurostep on Milwaukee Bucks podcast, proudly a part of the Blue Wire Podcast Network and the Eurostep Podcast Network. I am Ty Windish. I am joined as always by my inquisitive, tired co-host Rohan Khadi. It's an interview pod, Rohan. That's why you're inquisitive.
1: Okay. See, that that makes sense. I'm very excited for this though, Ty. Yeah,
3: yeah. yeah. Not not feeling tired anymore. And as No, as no, this has juice me up. Yeah, exactly. We are joined by a very esteemed guest, Coach Brad Fisher. I think you always have to say coach before you say a coach's name. Coach Brad Fisher, who is head coach of the UW Oshkosh women's basketball team and a Milwaukee Bucks fan. And those two things are going to come together nicely on this podcast as Brad has some things to get off the chest about evaluating <laughs> coaching, especially Mike Budenholzer. I'm very excited for this. Brad, how's it going? It's
2: going great, guys. I appreciate it. We've uh, had conversations uh, in the DMs in the past about Bud and coaching stuff. So I'm excited to, to talk it out and uh, talk at Buck's Twitter, which I love being a part of and don't get as great a chance in the season. Uh, but our season usually ends right before the playoffs. So it's perfect timing for me.
3: Absolutely. Ty, so I-
1: Ty, you asked this question already, but I have to get this out of the way. I asked Chase Buford when we had him on uh, earlier last year at this point. Wow. Yeah. Uh, is, do you prefer coach? Is that a thing? Like,
2: no, my wife, my wife asked me that too, cause she always hears people. She's not from the sports world. Um, so she asked me that, like, we'll run into people uptown and be like, Hey coach. And be like, ship first, she'll ask if they know my name. And, <laughs> and I, I do think it's kind of weird. It's just one of those things. Like, I guess, people call doctors doctors and there's a couple other titles that come with it but coach is a weird one that kind of regardless of what level you coach like if people know that you do they just call you that i've got really good friends that call me that and their wives too are like why do you call him coach (laughs) like no one no one calls you business administrator or marketing (laughs) guy so yeah that part's weird i i don't care i mean i'm I'm not that important, so it doesn't. It doesn't, definitely doesn't matter to me. I,
1: I think it's say. it's it's the weird. It's the uh, super super coach personality guy. I think it's Jason Garrett. Who was the guy who went in front of the media? Gotta it was call like, me call coach. me coach. Gotta yeah, call me coach. Yep, that was him. I've yeah. always had questions about that ever since. Yeah, no,
2: I no, definitely not. I think I do think there's a lot of scenarios where it's weird and for my players. Sure, everybody else, definitely not.
3: I will say, so behind the curtain, I think maybe my first like sports interview when I was on the UW Oshkosh paper was I don't know if you remember this was you, Brad, and I yeah, definitely, I definitely went coach. I was definitely sticking to yeah. coach. I don't know why in that moment. I do this a lot at the herd games too. It's just in the, like in the environment, in the coaching environment, it's so easy to default to coach. I don't know what I would do if I saw like, if I saw chase on Allen out and about, I don't know what I would do. I want to say I would go first name, but I might go coach.
2: Yeah. A lot of professors do. And I always wonder if they actually know my name, but I remember, I remember our first stuff. I remember the people at school that know what they're doing. And I felt like you knew what you're doing. So that's that's a compliment. Um,
3: and sure. obviously you, you've kept moving with it. So um, it's good to see you taking names here. Appreciate that. So uh, the feeling is mutual. Before we get to the questions, I got to go through the resume a little bit. Just if, if anyone is listening is not familiar, um, you, you've been a Bucks fan for a while. We're going to talk about that. But just the coaching chops. I have to take a deep breath. I wrote some stuff down. It's going to take a little while. Ten years now at UWO. 205 yep. wins i think officially more than 200 wins 20 wins in every full season five total coach of the year awards nine total wiac titles 15 different or 15 total player nominations or excuse me honors for all WIAC first team nods and another six total all-american player nods so the accolades are there the career is very impressive so thank you for gracing our podcast with <laughs> coaching excellence brad
2: well, and I want to start it all off by saying, I don't even come close to think that I'm an expert to weigh in on this. i'm an I feel like I'm qualified to weigh in on it as a bucks fan relative to maybe other bucks fans, but not relative to people that actually really know the NBA. so I don't I don't I want to make sure when I say things that I think are true that by no means do I think that that's the answer on behalf of all coaches, but um, it is different. It's a different lens that you look at, at how the game's analyzed and how it's talked about.
1: For sure. But it's also, you know, g- give yourself some credit. <laughs> well, <laughs> like You are definitely way, way, way more qualified to talk about this than most people. Let, let's just let, let's get that out of the way. I know, I know you want to downplay it, but. No. And I
2: appreciate <laughs> that because usually there's a separation from men's and women's basketball, too, where a men's coach would would be looked at to have a better idea of this than, than a women's coach. So even from a women's side, I feel like, and I, I I think that's changed. And I think, I think true basketball people appreciate our game more than they did five, 10, for sure, 10 years ago. Um, But as a women's coach to get asked to talk about the men's game or the pro game is kind of a big deal for us. So um, I think we're all super qualified to talk about the game and usually people don't care what we think. So I I think in that sense, I appreciate, definitely appreciate it. And, and we have accomplished a lot. So I'm proud of that piece too.
3: Absolutely. So here's a question to to bring it back to before all that stuff. What did you get into first bucks fandom or wanting to be a coach and did one from the other
2: bucks fandom. Yeah. The plan wasn't to coach. Um, I was, well, I was going to teach and probably do some coaching and something, but um, it wasn't it definitely wasn't going to be a career and I was a bucks fan <sighs> I mean the, the first games the thing that people younger than me don't realize is the bucks were not when we when I was young when I was before you know 13 12 years old like Brewer games were hit and miss I remember seeing Juan Davis' no hitter and I think that was a year where 40 games maybe came to our TVs Bucks were never on and they weren't on national TV so, we knew Paul Pressey and Sidney Monterrey through basketball cards and Jack Sigma and Larry Christoviak like through basketball cards. We never saw him play. So and no one was making the all-star team. So, you know, if, if all of a sudden the local games started kind of trickling in, I lived in central Wisconsin. So I didn't really feel it until I got old enough to find other places to read, you know, read about it, sporting news and, and places like that. And, uh, I actually became a Charles Barkley fan in part because you could watch him and it was accessible and it was kind of during the end, middle of the end of his career, the local games started coming and we would get, and channel 24 was the the cable channel that came through to central Wisconsin that, you know, now they were doing 10 games a year and we started hearing Jim Paschke for the first time. Um, and then in high school, I had still never been to a Bucks game, so um, you know, high school. I'm following, and finally, um, the Bucks with Ray Allen and those guys start getting on national TV, and that was really the first time I watched. I think the first time I went to the Bradley Center, I was a freshman in college at lacrosse, and and the next year I bought a ten pack and was driving three hours with one of my roommates, and we had a ten pack to see Jordan and for the Wizards, and he didn't play that night, and you know, a bunch of those stories. I was working for. Um, for the TV station on campus and took my camera to game one of the Orlando series. And my buddy shot it for me. And I did kind of a live shot out front of the Bradley Center um, for game one of that playoff series. And so that kind of got me wrapped up in it. And, and ever since it's been kind of my team. And when you become a head coach, you lose a lot of your ability to put an emotional investment into sports. <laughs> Honestly, like when I was an assistant, I was so into every sport. And now, as a head coach, you got to put so much into your own team and the ups and downs of a season. You can't have a team in every sport that you really invest in. You just don't have the the energy for it. So the Bucks have have become that team, and luckily it happened. And especially at the time that it has, where now they're they're so fun to watch and follow.
1: That's oh, that's incredible. That makes that just makes me smile hearing here in those stories. Um, getting to your current coaching career, unfortunately. Uh, such as Mike Budenholzer, you're away from your team due to health and safety protocols. First and foremost, yeah. we hope that you are all doing well and yeah, uh, everything sure. clears quickly. Yep. Yeah. But uh, what's your what's your overall impression of your team so far? They're eleven and four. I know we were talking before we started recording about a tough, tough loss. Last night, but what are you, what are you just your overall impressions of the season so far?
2: Yeah, we've got a really good team. Um, we've got a really senior leading you know veteran team. We just we we didn't finish a game that we lost in overtime last night. One of those coaches' losses where you you've got a dozen plays that you wish you could do over. I wasn't there for it, so that made it harder. And you know our staff is well prepared to do. You know we we work in sync, and they're doing what I would be doing. So we've got a good team and and it's it's hard this year at you see it in the nba it's different because they get 82 games but for us with 25 games um it's hard balancing covid and you know i feel like i did most everything i could to avoid it and you know now i'm missing games and um i think we're going to just continue to have that happen over the next two months and you know, we don't have – we just don't have the amount of games to play with and, you know, the depth of the playoffs and things like that. Like, we to get that large bid, we've got to be one of the top 20 teams in the country, and we can't afford to drop games. So um, there's just a lot to balance this year. It's been a tough three years. Nothing relative to what the world is going through, but just in the straight basketball sense, it's been a tough three years to try to figure out how to be successful, keep your players' mental health in the right place, keep them healthy – period physically and you know through COVID so you know it's been mentally exhausting at some point so this conversation is a nice little reprieve from going back to worrying about all that
3: stuff well we just got one more question that's sort of the parallel path kind of question um thinking about Darvin Ham who coached for the Bucks uh on, on their game Wednesday night and potentially will tomorrow night too you know what kind of advice do you give to your acting head coach Staples for your team? And, and, you know, is it, do you want them to just coach freely? Are are you given, are you trying to, you know, send some, some updates and some guidelines or how do you approach that?
2: Yeah, we, we did a lot of zooms the last three days, four days now going into this next game to just try to get on the same page. What are, what are the base concepts that, you know, I think, how do you feel, you know, she's had to take over, all the prep. I think the NBA is probably a little different. They're they're a little bit looser practice wise. They don't put as much prep in, I don't think, game to game. At least it's been my sense with the Bucs relative to Utah or some other teams that seem to do a little more game planning. So that part's probably a little bit easier for them. Um, you know, Darwin's been in a lot of a lot of basketball, you know, more so than a 27-year-old, 28-year-old, coach, like in my sense. But um, and for him, you know, he's I, I would assume. He's got a little bit of that itch with how much we talk about teams kind of sniffing around and opportunities that might come for him. So, you know, in our sense, i tried to take as much pressure off as I could and and losing the game the way we did. I know that didn't help her when it was over. And I think, you know, the NBA, especially with now Darvin and half the team out, you know, I'm not sure how much comes out of that for him other than, you know, a little bit getting his feet wet of being the guy that gets to walk the sideline.
1: You mentioned earlier that you see the games sort of through a different lens now that, because you're coaching. What do you feel like is the biggest misconception you see from fans who try to analyze coaching?
2: I I think that the amount that the coaches actually affect is completely overblown. I, I just think there's a there's an assumption that everything that happens is is controlled by the coach or could be controlled by the coach and i think even for the, the nba is even less of that than it would be at our level like we'll finish a 25 game season with 75 probably practices and division one division two will be even higher than that and they've got way more access i mean the nba if if they got in an a2 game season if they got a hundred and 20 legitimate practices i think that'd be way too high that number is probably way too high there's probably i don't know if they have 80 yeah i remember i've gone to a couple of training camp practices with in the kid era and then the start of the bud era and it's it's kind of incredible how much those players already know and the amount of stuff that they rip through if they are trying to put in a a package of sideline plays or a package of half court sets and the expectation that they can rip through five on day one and boom, boom, boom. And now everyone's going to go run them and then move it out of the next thing. Um, But there's, there's not a lot of that in game. And um, I just think, I think in kind of following along on Buck's Twitter and trying to be engaged in the conversations that, that everything that happens tries in some places tries to get tied back to the coach. And I just, I think there's a lot more nuance to basketball and a lot more nuance to the day-to-day that just gets lost in that. And I just, I I just don't think they have as much control as people feel like we do. And I I never feel like I have as much control as people think that I do.
3: So uh, on that, on that um, same kind of idea, it seems like at the, at the simplest level, I think all coaches are evaluated I won't say only, but very strongly, just on the the end result, right? Did they win? Did yeah. they lose? So you know the the most anti bud sentiment was obviously soon after the two playoff series that they lost, because obviously the team doesn't get the job done. Um, the head coach is the one running the show, so he he's going to get some blame for that. Do you think yeah. it's fair the way we we evaluate on wins and losses? And do you say uh, see other ways for a typical Bucks fan or two typical Bucks podcasters? To evaluate coaching better? Or is it even practical to do that, you know, watching, you know, through screens like we usually are? It,
2: to the first question, yeah, I do think it's fair. Ultimately, that's how we're judged and the wins and losses piece and how far you go. Obviously, I think it's got to be relative to the talent yet you have. Um, I, think, I think there's an ability to talk about overall what appears to be overall concept schemes, and how that relates to to your team? Um, I think in the NBA a lot of their a lot of the disconnect potentially comes from coach to general manager, the team that's built versus what the coach wants to do. Probably, um, you know, does it is it even practical? I, I think I think for me the best way to think about it, and the, the way I think, I feel like football is kind of ruined how general fans look at other sports i think football is so stop and start and the ability to pick apart a part of play uh, uh, down and distance a situation it's a one game a week so there's been so for me that i saw it with the brewers first where P- packer fans became brewer fans and looked at baseball as every game was was like a Packer game on Sunday when they started watching every day. And if they don't win that Wednesday afternoon game against the Phillies, now they lost the game to the Cubs and man, you can't have a lineup out there on that Wednesday that doesn't have Ryan Braun and Prince Fielder in it. And the, the idea of understanding for baseball and now for the NBA, now that people have have jumped in the box of what the marathon is like to get to the finish line and, what a coach needs to do to manage a group of guys to get the whole group to the finish line, not just the seven best players that are going to play in the playoffs, but uh, the end of the rotation guy that you may need in the playoffs if there's an injury or uh, Pat Connaughton's development. Because I, I mean, I know even from Ty from two years ago or whatever, just thinking about where he's come from and, and all the things that I think Bud has done for someone like Connaughton to get him to be the player he is now by showing trust before the average fan would have thought he was, he was that guy. And I think if you look at it from a uh, football lens of 16 games and say, we've got to win this game this night, this is the one we're watching right now. Pat Connaughton isn't playing two years ago in that situation. And I think, that piece to me in Wisconsin, at least, has been where I think some of that is lost. Where everybody treats every regular season game like it is a must-win game and loses the understanding of the long term that comes with it. And now that that you know resting players and and load management and those things are part of it, and not still not understanding why that's important. I think those are some huge pieces of that puzzle. I think that. Um, that people don't do a good enough job of 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 looking at, and I think looking at where the team starts the season and where it finishes, what the rotation looks like, um, to me, that that evaluation of are guys getting better, are they staying engaged? Yeah, there's going to be piston nights and nights luck at an 82 game season, but in general, are guys showing up and competing in the majority of those games they think they should win are they showing up on the nights when they're playing the lakers and and you know brooklyn and whoever the five teams are that year that that are the best teams in the league and and it is so hard and and for you guys to do it after every game or you know multiple times a week you have to look at it in, in the short term and i just think from a coaching standpoint you're always looking at it from the big picture of of where we're starting on day one to, to how we start the playoffs. And, you know, we always talk about being the best team, but we're capable of being when the postseason starts. And, and I think in some sense that's kind of where the NBA guys and baseball guys, similarly with a long season are at. And football is you just don't have losses to do. And in Wisconsin, the Packers were the thing before the Bucks and the Brewers were the thing. So people transferred that passion for each game to each of those games. And I think we lose a lot of the perspective on what a season is actually like for guys going six months, you know, in, in 82 games, you know, all these West coast road trips, like you're going to lose three games on a West coast road trip just because of schedule. And, you know, guys heard on that one. And, and it kind of all comes out in the wash at the end. You end up, your record is who you are by the end. And, and usually it works out and i think that part gets lost in trying to break it down every single day and that night you tune in you want to see the best version of them and sometimes that's not that's not what they're thinking about that night when they show up
1: yeah you met, like talking about the long term i think is very fitting for this team considering over the last two seasons we've seen like this coaching staff take uh take some strides in terms of like taking uh new defensive schemes implementing them because you see they need to do that for the playoffs. It's all about the big picture view. Even if they, like you mentioned, they lead to losses randomly throughout the season, a couple of three-game stretch where you're just not looking your best. Have you noticed any more decisions besides like player development? You mentioned Pat Contin and like other players that have developed as well as I just mentioned defensive schemes. Have you noticed any other decisions made by this coaching staff that are more focused on the long-term rather than the short-term? You
2: know, I thought it was interesting. Obviously the discourse for the first two years was lack of adjustments, lack of adjustments. I think the biggest thing that probably got lost in, in the ascension to year one of Bud where a uh, seven seed the year before, I think the year, you know, when the Celtics beat him in seven to go from seven to one, that year was a combination of trying to establish a culture with all of a sudden, holy, holy cow, we're one in the league. We're rampaging people. This is how we did it. Let it fly. I was, I think, part of the very first team. So that's kind of the culture piece of, of that. And they hadn't really had a chance to rein in what that meant for certain people and certain nights and certain times. And, and I thought they got caught up that year. And in, in, I think rightly feeling like what we've done has been super successful. We haven't, we haven't we haven't been forced to think about doing something different. I think the, those adjustments over two years, especially last year, and the bubble is there's way too many things going on that year for me to think that we, we really look, obviously they, they look seriously at whether they need to change off of that year. Um, but last year, and I remember, I try to listen to as much Zach Lowe and guys like that, that I think do a really good job with the nuance stuff. And I, I, I remember I was still at Parkside, so this was probably twelve or thirteen years ago. Listening, and Lowe might have even been on a Bill Simmons podcast talking about the amount of different lineups that the Spurs were using—just random two centers and and like at our level, we don't have the amount of games or the ability to take losses to do things like that. But just thinking outside the box before that—that that was one of that was probably one of the the few questions I had about Budenholzer was if you, if he came from that, why, why was the first year bucks so kind of rigid with rotations and how they played and the drop, you know, consistently and not being a little more flexible. And I think in year one, you're trying to kind of establish an overall sense of this is what we're going to do. saw a ton of success. And then, you know, felt like, Hey, no one can stop it to this point. Why would we think, or why should we switch something now? And, and kind of got caught up in some of that stubbornness of this is the way we're going to win. And and I think looking at adjustment wise, you know, I I, I actually appreciate the NBA guys that don't play the young guys. Um, and I think that's probably something that when I read that frustrates people, why, why is Jordan Noir getting more time in some of these early games and things like that? And, and I, I do think there's a hierarchy to, earning your way to legitimate time. Now this year that's been thrown out the window because half the team's out every other game. But um, I just think it's a lot of subtle stuff, uh, a lot of little stuff that, that I think he's, they've, he and they have grown more comfortable at understanding now. And I think, I think now I feel like we just got to trust them. I mean, if anything last year, not, not just the adjustments during the season and being ready to do more things, but, early playoff series struggles last year in kind of each series from game one with with Miami in a kind of a dogfight to boom and then you know get hammered in Brooklyn and just just getting better throughout the series and doing a lot of little things and you know establishing more stuff in the post for Giannis as that playoffs went on. And and I just I think that they are this actually is a really good staff at at watching what they are struggling with and getting better. And I just, I think it took a little bit of time for whether it was confidence or establishing kind of the, the baseline of, okay, here's, here's in general what we want to accomplish. Now that we feel good about being able to do that, now we can start to branch out a little bit and we've been shown that we have to. And, you know, I think a a tie had had mentioned to me off the side about, um, Bud kind of saying on Zach Lowe that it just worked and, I think there's some stubbornness to that and not kind of want to giving people credit for, for questioning the rigidness. Um, Cause I think, I think lie detector tests, he would, he would admit that, you know, he, he opened up some of his stubbornness and, and, and try to do more things and obviously it paid off. And again, I just think there's so much nuance to, to basketball. The game never stops the amount of possessions that go back and forth without the coach having any impact on, um, it's pretty significant, I think. And, and it's a bunch of general concepts and trying to get guys to play well together, getting the right groups that, that can play on both ends and kind of establishing an identity. And, and it, I, I feel like that part with Bud gets lost, that he's developed a team that cares about defense. Um, and that's not, that's not the case in every, in every organization, NBA, even a lot of the good ones. And, and while they might struggle with a drop coverage for, you know, a month, um, you know, I, I just the I think the overall stuff that needs to be looked at more just gets lost on the day to day.
0: We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast.
3: Uh, first, the fun stat for the playoff run is they never led a series after 48 minutes, even the one that they swept. Just to, yeah. to show, and it's so funny because the whole thing with with Bud and the Bucks was no adjustments. Clearly, they figured out some adjustments in every series because obviously yeah. they all turned in their favor eventually. But I did want to ask you about the idea of culture, and I think you kind of you you mentioned it there and you talked about it. This was something that I really did not think about with Bud. Until Muren Fader's book dropped, um, the honest book, and there were some of the kid stories in there and we don't have to relitigate all the kid stuff. <laughs> I'll never try to make a coach talk bad about a coach. I've listened to enough of the Van Gundys. I don't oh, I gotta go back through some old tweets then because <laughs> I've got
2: I've got both. And I have Ken Maka for the Brewers and the end of Jason Kidd are about the only two. Co- I'm the biggest coach apologist, and I I know that there's some Jason Kidd. There's a lot of Jason Kidd on there at the end. That um, that's just different, and, and to me, the culture piece is a big part of that. it.
3: That's exactly. So I'm glad you you brought us back there from the from the laughing at, at at Jason Kidd. But I think that's when you really start to appreciate. You know, you think about all that the Bucks have been through since Bud and the tough loss to Toronto, which I think was people were mad, but I think to an extent. You know, I remember that year we during the season were like, are they going to win 50 games? And they went and won <laughs> 60 games. Like the expectation wasn't there, but especially after the bubble, I think that's the kind of series that can kind of break a team, right? Especially at the pro level where, you know, a guy can just leave, right? Especially Giannis, whose contract yeah. is about to be up, like teams break for less than that. That was, you know, an abomination based on expectations and, and everything else. And I really started to think about reading that book and, and how the Bucs didn't always have that about how big that culture piece is. And that's something that, I mean, clearly they're not holding up the trophy if they're not all bought in all together. working in new guys. I mean, two of their six or seven most important guys were brought in just that year. Actually more than that, I guess Bobby too. And they just kept yeah. figuring it out. They got everyone to buy into the culture. So I mean, I think it's barely even a question, but you know, how important do you think that culture aspect is? And clearly, it seems like Bud has has really done well at doing that.
2: Yeah, without following the every team as closely as I do the Bucs, it's, it's hard to, for me to say how it is relatively. But I get the sense that they do a really good job internally of having conversations about where things are at. I think, I, like you said, I think the bubble could have broke a lesser team with a lesser coach, um, lesser leader for sure. Um, and there's no question that there was conversations about doubts that Giannis had or Chris had or Brooke had with stuff that Bud did or, or their coaching staff believed that the players thought we could do this differently. There's no question. They had a ton of those conversations. He went to come back if they wouldn't have had conversations that led to them feeling comfortable to another year with, with Giannis's contract kind of on the horizon, if they felt like that was going to jeopardize it, they would have, their Darvin hand would be the coach or whoever else would be the coach. But I think, and, and I feel like they've been pretty tight with what's going on and you don't hear a lot of, a lot of rumors and drama from people. Not, and Giannis is a huge part of it, but, if Giannis is one, especially during that time, Bud's probably two. And, you know, Chris isn't a guy who's talking and that's, that's good. Um, you know, they, they did a good job of having the right guys that there wasn't the seventh guy that wanted to, to get some shine and, you know, send something through. But even while that was going on, there were just, there wasn't a lot of internal stuff being leaked out about players doubting this or should have done that. And, and, you know, I think the culture piece, again, I, I don't think Bud is, the main piece, I think, in the NBA, your superstar probably has the for sure the biggest impact on that. But he also has to the coach also has to have his Giannis's respect in that piece. And even if Giannis doubted some things, um, they have the right conversations that led him back to to last year and and you know, and even the amount of minutes he's playing, that was a thing obviously at the end of both of those playoff series and him not playing more and, and you know, but him being able to say that and Bud being able to take that and, and, you know, increase it. But there was, I'm sure there was conversations about why he didn't want to do that. And, and I think their communication and ability to understand the importance of having everybody at least, especially outwardly appear on the same page, but obviously it's inwardly too. And I think, those guys, the chemistry that comes from from that piece and him letting them and, and, you know, people make fun of let it fly. And I hate bad shooter shooting, but, you know, that part of feeling like, hey, I, I've got to, you know, if I'm open, I got to knock this down. Like that builds the ninth, 10th and 11th guy to feel like when I, you know, when I get in there, like I'm not that far removed from those other guys. And in some ways we would probably argue that's not a great thing. But I think internally when those guys are traveling together for six months, like that's kind of a big deal that the 10th guy feels like he's got a stake in this. And I, I'm not sure every coach does a great job of making everybody up and down the lineup feel like that. And I think that's why guys like Coddleton develop because they felt engaged in the process. And And now as their role grows, they've felt like they've been there from the ground floor instead of an outside piece that was kind of trying to, to punch in. I think that's where Grayson Allen's probably at right now. Great start struggling and and more so, trying to find his feet in this group than he is as a basketball player. I think that that part is, but that again, that's an 82 game season. We just need him. Bucks just need him when the playoffs start to be feeling good. And there's 42 games or whatever left to, to get there. And that's why he shouldn't sit the bench for the next 20 games to to figure it out in practice. That's not. It's just not how it works.
1: No, that that's a fantastic point. That's something we've talked about before. In the sense, like we've seen, Grace and Allen sort of uh, teeter between uh, uh, sort of play styles when he's uh, when their player's out versus when the player is all healthy. That's just that just uh, affirms what we've been saying. So, thank you for that. Uh, Just just a sort of a a question to sort of uh, evaluate Bud specifically. I know we've talked about a lot of Bud stuff. Just as a general evaluation, how would you say he's done so far and how would you necessarily classify his coaching style? Like we know we've talked about him as a player development guy versus, uh, you know, someone who just wants to play the, uh, the young guys all the time or not play the young guys all the time. How would you evaluate his performance and how would you necessarily classify his performance?
2: Yeah. I mean, obviously I think he's one of the best in the NBA. I mean, I think the list of guys that you would trust to have a team try to win a championship is pretty short. Uh, If there's, if there's eight um, in the league and and there's people that are talked about like that, that haven't proven that, um, you know, I mean, it's hard to say because there's some things that annoy people like, the technique no technicals, you know, doesn't complain to the refs a lot. And there's things that you look at and you're like, ah, you know, I wonder what the guys think about that. Um, but the reality is obviously he's won a championship now. So it's it's been proven that he can he can do that. But I just think that the process from unlocking year one of a team that hadn't really won anything to just boom, gone. And and now I think we just got to look at it different and, uh, you know, they should probably be doing more experimenting for the rest of his, his time. And the hard part about the NBA is at some point the message is, is going to die. And there's just like, it, it, you're not, it, you're just not going to be a 12 to 20 year guy anymore with the same franchise in the NBA, but he'll be able to go to another franchise and I think shoot the same adrenaline into the, the program. So, you know, I, I still kind of view him as a player's coach just because I feel like these guys really, really care about defense, which is not, again, always the norm. Um, guys keep coming back. Giannis is obviously part of it, but guys want to come back. George Hill came back. I mean, guys that that go are back. West is back again. So, again, if Giannis is the top of that list, they still got to come back. And the coach is still talking more than anybody probably in the locker room so you still got to be willing to come back to listen to him so I think some of those things that annoy us about what we see are completely different on on the inside and I just think I think there's a little respect obviously that grew I think that the embrace between Giannis and Chris and and Bud last year was probably my favorite part of the whole deal like I felt more vindicated for him last year than I did for Giannis which is as much grief as he takes for the no bag and things like that I felt as much for Bud and and because that was more internal that was way more internal within Bucks fans and I know he walked around you know I don't feel pressure like that in my job but I know he walked around Milwaukee feeling half of the eyes or more being like this is the reason we are not winning the championship which I think was completely unfair and and for him to get that, I, just, you know, I, I was as happy for him as anybody. And I think, I think the players, by the way they've they've returned, the way they've acted, have have kind of shown us that he is kind of a players guy, regardless of if he's he's not players coach in the buddy sense where we go hang out and and do stuff, but he's players coach and kind of letting them do their thing, and you know, it, some of it drives. Fans and Bucks Twitter crazy because we all think it should be done a certain a different way and a lot tighter and more specific things that we want to hear said in press conferences and and you know sound drops in the fourth quarter on on ABC and and none of that stuff matters at all.
3: Yeah, it seems like to him more than anybody. I do think when we get like the little peeks through to the more authentic stuff, like in the last all access when he was talking to Brooke and he basically said. I so see you don't have your shoes, like shoes, socks. I'll take you however you bleep and come, Brooke, like miss your buddy. Like you can see like those little moments. Yeah. Where, like, yeah, it's a lot. He's not walking around the facility. Like my favorite my favorite Bud moment ever, the funny funny Bud moment, The winning it was the favorite one. But uh, it was early in the season. It might have even been preseason. And the he has to do the – it was a national TV game. He had to do the interview. And they ask him like what he's seen or what he's been looking for. And he literally said – just hoping to see our guys play five on five. And like, oh, you're <laughs> yeah. gonna get that, bud. You will get that. Like, I just think this is a bucks a whole bucks wide thing. Most of the guys, it just feels like they put up. Even the honest, sometimes I feel like gives these answers where it's like, "What does that even mean?" Like, are you yeah. just saying something at this point to to make people stop asking questions, which is frustrating to us a little bit. But I do think, as you said, there, it doesn't really matter at all internally. Like, clearly. There's no communication issue within the Bucks because if there was, it would be like some of these teams where it feels like every third practice there's a players only meeting and the details get leaked. You know who doesn't want shows? Boston? <laughs> What'd you say? Boston, Boston. Yeah, Boston. They have a players only meeting every other week. <laughs> when you uh, when you mentioned uh, a certain coach who gets talked about like that, I was going to say, did that coach just become a GM or? Uh, <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah, and I th- well, and I
2: think the other thing they appreciate is he never he's never made it about
3: him, and
2: he doesn't have a pr the pr guy that Monty Williams has, and and he's not he's not going after his brand like he's not building a coaching brand. He's not wearing
3: uh, Mike Bud hats to uh, yeah, yeah like pre-
2: he's he's just now, and I think I, I would assume the guys appreciate that he's not standing because he does get to talk. More or as much as anybody, he's not standing up there trying to take credit for stuff, and I think he does a good job deflecting. And you know, he could. The option is either you talk about yourself, you say nothing, or you take all the blame. And he kind of sits in the say nothing camp, but he's he has never, in my memory, put any blame on a player or or you know, thrown a guy under the bus. And I think pros you know i don't know a ton of of pro basketball coaches i know some baseball guys and football guys and and you know i think they'll they'll always say like the fastest way to lose lose a team and lose guys is how you talk about them in the media and i just think he's done a great job of always praising his guys never putting blame on individuals after bad stuff happens and and I, that part alone, I know it comes out as nothing, but I know the players appreciate it. They never have to open their phone to Twitter and see that bud just drag them across the floor. And if if he's upset about something, it would always be talked about in the team sense. And most of the time, they had that conversation in the locker room before he talked to the media. So I, I think those things get lost in the shuffle. And when we want content that's a lot more interesting... And he's just not willing to give it. And I think long term, that's a great that's a great thing because that was not the case <laughs> with the regime before. And uh, I think there's a lot of places around the NBA. It's the reason teams are they who they are that they're not the Knicks and the Lakers and and you know like Boston. I feel like is kind of now with with Smart will say something and then Jalen Brown's weighing in and Horford's trying to jump in on it. And there's just always something. And I think. Yes, it's the Bucks guys, but it's also how much respect they've built for each other. And the coach has to get credit for that if you're going to blame him for losses and rotations and and things you don't like.
3: Just a, a real quick example on that, something that just made me think about this. Did you guys see when, uh, I think it was Mike Ballone, I don't think there was an interim coach, but he basically after a game said like, I think it was Bones Highland, just didn't, or someone didn't know the playbook. Am I getting this confused? It was it was a it was an interim head coach. It was it was an interim head coach. Yeah, it was like a player just didn't know the playbook or something. And I, he said
1: I he, he said like, I thought he would know more about yeah. the playbook. Yeah. yeah,
3: and I was kind of thought like we have never like you said we've never gotten anything close to that. Like I, there's been times Bucks players messed up really bad, and yeah, Bud bless his heart just went out there and said like we're gonna watch the tape, we're gonna get better. We didn't execute, but he's never gonna be like oh Chris messed that up. Like it's true that really just does not really but, and it happened it happened in
2: football this week too at uh, mike zimmer i think they asked him about kellen mond do we, yeah. you know do we need to see kellen mond he's like nope see him every day <laughs> see him every day and that's the same thing like jordan nawara when they asked him about him, oh, you know jordan's getting better and you know, he's working on some things the answer probably is he ain't ready he can't guard but i don't trust him And I would rather go with a vet who I kind of know what I'm going to get than have this roller coaster right now with a guy that I I don't know what's going to come. And it's not a good answer for us because we're like, guy can score and, you know, we need this and that. And on his end, it's like, I know what he can and can't do. And he might be ready to go do it, but we're not ready for it. And a lot of times in those sense, his teammates aren't ready for it either. Like, Like I play kids that I trust. But I also play kids that their teammates trust. And I don't know in a lot of these cases with some of these guys that we think should be on the floor, like the guys that play a lot might not want to play with them. They might not, if, if I can't trust, you're going to be in the spot that I need you to be in. I'd rather have a guy out there that can't do what you can do, but it's going to be in the right spot. So I know what I can and I am going to do And I, again, that part, we, we would never know because those conversations aren't happening, but we're also not, he's not telling us that. And I think that's, that's a good thing. And he protects the, those guys like that.
1: I know we've talked, uh, we talked around it a little bit. Let's just uh, get into some fun, fun Bud frustrations <laughs> that, we've, uh, that we've seen from uh, across Bucks fandom. And it's like, oh, why does Bud do this? Why does Bud do that? This is your chance to respond. First off, beautiful. we've seen... We've seen a lot of discourse that Bud does not get technicals enough. He's not standing up for his guys. I think that's He's not defending one this year,
3: right? Because I feel like this year, with everything else going on, we're not seeing as much strategy. I think it's like the techs is what I see the most. Do you agree, Rohan?
1: Yeah, I think I think the tech thing is what we're seeing the most. It's like when he actually does get one, we're like, oh my god! I think he got technical yeah. in his uh, in the Pistons game. I believe uh,
3: accidentally he did. Yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> what what is your response to that? That he doesn't get techs enough.
2: That one's interesting because I think a if if we had one shot technicals and played eighty two games, I would get a technical at least every other day. Personally, (laughs) like I I get warned enough, but I also know it's two shots for us. Sometimes the ball, depending on when it happens, like it feels like a big deal in the NBA. It's a throwaway. Like I I'd take a technical every other night. I I think it. That's what I'm curious. Like, what do the guys think? Do they feel like they're being supported? Like, I think he's he's been semi aggressive sometimes, probably reckless in challenges for guys when they ask for challenges. Like, and that's a way to show support. I mean, for me, technicals. If if it's not an egregious call that you just want to light a guy up on, and now with replay, they don't need to do it as much as you used to when that wasn't an option. If if you're not doing it because you just lose it. It, it's only because you're trying to protect a guy or support a guy when, when he's upset. And so I guess the question would be, do the guys feel like he's not supporting? I would assume based on the track record here, that if that were the case, he would ramp it up. And my guess is he just doesn't feel like it affects things that positively. And, and there are relationship deals, obviously, with officials that you're going to see in the playoffs and, and guys that we all know that we don't want to see as fans, <laughs> When they have the Bucs, Mark Davis was the one with George Carl, where it was always like automatic. There's going to be a T and, and some sort of confrontation when when Carl had the bucks. And, you know, the fact that Bud doesn't have that, maybe he's a good thing. So um, I don't know. That one's a tough one because I would be curious if guys feel like that would help more. But I just, I, I feel like he would have done it already. I, I think he's pretty smart in that sense of understanding if that could help him or not.
3: How many texts do you get?
2: I've had four or five in ten years. Oh, okay, um, so you, you
3: have been. Yeah. Then, knowing the the cost.
2: Yeah, yeah. I got two as an assistant. I got pretty gun shy, <laughs> and my head coach at the time was not happy, and and I I lose it quick. Like I I put in a lot. We put a lot of time prepping for games. So when there's something that I think is going to happen from film that happens and doesn't get called, like I go from zero to hundred fast and have to get talked off the ledge sometimes, but um but yeah i mean i've gotten i think four or five in 10 years so every other year maybe i get one usually hopefully never in a situation to hurt our team but yeah the nba i just feel like they want to get rid of them they should go back to two in the ball and people might shut up a little bit but um but then i don't know if guys would want to call it because it would be a more meaningful play too so it's kind of six and one half dozen yeah
1: you said that uh you you don't know if the guys feel like well, it's defending them when you've gotten technicals in the past have you feel like your team has rallied around you in that sense
2: yeah i mean I, again i think it's some there's one or two times where i just lost it but there's there's other times where it's a build up of there's been three or four calls and now this one you kind of feel your bench off to the side kind of everybody gets up and is like where's the call and you kind of feel like okay if if they're all into it a the call but also it's usually a culmination and and I feel like that he he has been a little bit in that place where it's a culmination, technical, and not a not an individual situation. But it's probably a little bit different, and I would think it's a little bit different for him, especially with some of the whistles that Giannis has had over the course of his career. That that would probably be the place where you know I would have felt like there was some opportunity there to to get a little bit more aggressive in protecting Giannis because I think we all would feel like there was there was a different whistle for a stretch there with him compared to other superstar guys. But, um, but yeah, I, I feel it. I, I, it doesn't happen often and I'll get, I'll get my warning for me. A warning is a T kind of, because then you got to shut it up, but at least, you know, you kind of got your point across. So i know not NBA. They're not really handing out warnings. So um, that's probably the equivalent for us. Now, if I had to count warnings, there's probably, <laughs> there's probably been 75 and whatever, <laughs> 250 games. <laughs>
3: that's incredible I, just a side question before we get back to the frustrations this is something that I think about pretty often bud you'll see him late in a game the bucks can be up any amount and he'll call a timeout piss because somebody messed something up and I I remember I think it was the last the last UWO game I went to that you were coaching and it was the same deal I think I I, I think you had a team tripled up like it was crazy like they were up. <laughs> And I was like, kind of looking around, like watching the game, I look over and you're like crouched down at the, at the head of the bench, just like so pissed. And I was like, what possibly could there be? Is that just how you need to be as a coach? Like, is there, is it, you always just have to find something like, cause there's all, there's always, it's never perfect. Right. So do you need to start like kind of seek out things? Or is it just, is that just the natural state of being for a coach?
2: I think it's a natural state of being. I think I mean, I think a lot of times at the end of these games, it's, it's guys that in his case or my case, women that you think they think they should be playing more. And then you see something that either you went through in scout report or we go through every day in practice that you don't do. And it's kind of your opportunity to go, you know, this is kind of why like this, I need you to be able to do this because this is something we do all the time. And I need you to prove you can do it when you're on the floor That doesn't matter right now to the overall score, but I need it to matter to you. So when I put you in next time in the second quarter, when it's a four point game, instead of now in the fourth quarter, when it's 18, that I can trust that's going to happen or that it's not your habit, that you're not going to be able to get over this ball screen or be in the right spot on this rotation and you know i think i like to think that good coaches care about that stuff and that's part of player development that there's some accountability at the end of games it's super important to us that when we get to the end of the game that we've got freshmen and inexperienced players that they they play like they look like our team that it's not a free-for-all and and there's been some great free-for-all moments for the bucks i mean there's been a couple in the last two years of 18 point leads that become six and you know a three minute span and now guys are walking to the table to come back in and, you know guys throwing in by, you know i remember uh fanasis throwing a uh inbound pass to the other team you know in, in a six nothing run in about 20 seconds and and i that's ingrained in a coach like that you know we're 16 point lead with four minutes or two minutes isn't safe like that's the psycho part of coaches where everyone is already on their phones in the gym or walking out the door and you're like we could still lose this game if if we turn it over six times and and foul and you know foul three points you're like that's that's legitimately in our heads and i think that's that's probably pretty standard across the board
3: that's incredible Uh, okay another Uh,
1: frustration That we have here is uh, this came about during the playoff run. I think it was the final. Where was it? The Eastern Conference Finals when we got, or maybe it was the finals where we got the video inside the locker room. Mm. We got buds. I know it's coming. Play random. (laughs) This has been something that's just been, it's just been meme to death. And honestly, I didn't hate it at first because I was like. We've never seen this before. He could be saying it before every single game, and we just don't know about it. But just what? Just what, talk to us about
2: it. that one. Probably bothered me more than anything because more than almost all of them. Because a everything that goes from those clips to TV is is censored by the box. There are people okay it. Um, I always have friends that bother me when they'll text me and be like you know, he doesn't say anything. And, you know, why doesn't he coach him? And, you know, he doesn't draw anything up. Like, well, that part's already done by the time they've shown the clip or it hasn't happened yet. And I talked and I remember tweeting about it, like teams have their own languages. So random to the players does, is not mean random to us. It's not literally just do whatever. And like, we talk about playing with snap, and plan. it's, it's a way for us to talk about our pace. Like we got to play with some pop and some snap. And if people took the clips that I wanted, that was okay with other teams hearing, like I would say stupid words like that all the time too. And, and my, my assumption is random just meant we can't be predictable. We can't do the same thing every time down the floor. We, we have to switch up our entries. We have to get, and when you're playing in flow and you're playing in 24th, like, you're not running a set every time. You're not even running a, a set entry. So, to me, the message is be unpredictable, get to different spots, use all your actions, what you know, all of our concepts that we've talked about wanting to do tonight A, B, C, and D. Like, let's do A, B, C, and D. Let's not just do A. And then, you know, when we find a couple things that work, now in the second half, we'll talk about doing B and C a little bit more than A and D. And, and I, I just thought that got. It, he was like tagged with being stupid talking like people are acting like he's an idiot talking like that. And I think that, that little phrase, I, I actually, I was ready to start using it this year because I think it's a good way to talk about not being so damn predictable that you bring the ball for us, bring the ball up the right side of the floor every time. Cause you want the ball in your strong hand. Like we need to bring it up the left. We need to be able to bring it up the rail. And I thought, I actually thought it was a nice tight way to talk about, just being a little bit, a little bit more malleable in your stuff, and and not letting the other team sit on things, and and I might be wrong; it might mean something completely different for them. But I know the players know what it means, and and it ha- it does have value to them. And That's the part I just, I thought that was really goofy. I
3: I think too. I th- I think you're probably you're probably onto something here because especially the way the Bucks' offense started to work, incorporating the dunker spot more. And I am not a super technical basketball mind, but just clearly there's going to be a lot of relocation involved because you can't sit in the dunker spots. Yeah, and it's different people. Yeah, exactly. So there's so much movement. And I think if if they did the same, like, relocations every time, that would probably be really bad, right? I think teams would figure that out. They would know when to cut, when to intercept passes. Like, I think it did make a lot of sense. It just – I think I probably made some jokes about it. I never took it as something that was that serious, though, because obviously – we're not. We don't get anything from Bud anyway. We're not going to get anything right. from Bud in these clips. But it was funny, just the outsized reaction to just playing. Yeah, people went wild on that one. Yeah, um, kind of related to that. Not running enough plays, and this is something that you just you said as well. There's just not as much sets. Some teams run more, like you mentioned Utah before, Phoenix. There's teams that double drag screen like every possession. Bucks don't really. They start doing more pick and rolls. They do some pick and pops, but a lot of the time it is. It seems random. It's not random. Maybe it seems random to people, but what do you think about the criticism of Bud not running enough set plays? Yeah, I mean that
2: that stuff that comes out, I think, and probably the time you question it most is obviously when things gum up and when you get to the playoffs and you're grinding out possessions and and you know in that in that sense, I think about that shot that Middleton hit in in game six, the the elbow kind of fade jumper, the 19 feet or whatever it was, and great action with three different, you know, exchanges of switches and, and, you know, I think there was a blur in there and, and hand dribble handoff and stuff like that. Like, and, you know, it was the biggest shot. And, and the plays in that sense don't have to be as good. Cause you've got guys that can knock down shots with people in your face. Like I always laugh when, when, you know, NBA guys tweet out these, these plays and they're like, Hey, here's, here's horns, floppy bulls, maps, and you can use this with your team. And a guy's shooting a, a contested fadeaway, twenty-three footer, and knocks it down. Like that works for thirty-two teams in the, in the nation. And it, you know, so I guess from my from my experience, what I say to that is the best teams that I had ran the least amount of plays. And you can scout plays, and you can jam up plays, and you can have a plan for plays. And being able to play on the fly and having concepts that people have to guard, mo- really good motion concepts or really good five-out concepts. We run the five-out, so I watch the Bucs as much for our own stuff as I do for, for the enjoyment of watching them. And, and the, the more you can play without running plays, the harder you are to guard. And I've, there's got to be a balance. I was a huge set guy when I got to Oshkosh and had this whole book of, you know, I can't wait till I'm the head coach to run all this stuff and it works for a while and then pretty soon there's enough film on you and and the playoffs there's so much film and so much time to break games down that that everybody knows everybody's stuff so either your your sets have to be so good to get you to the spots you want and guys are probably still going to have to beat in an iso or a post-up and and have kind of the reads that they're going to play off of it but to me the less plays that you run the better off you are so you know i think it's obviously there's got to be a balance. And when you go six possessions in a big game without scoring and getting a good shot, like everyone says, we need to set, we need to set. And we talk about the same way, like call something to get everyone on the same page. But, um, but you know, I don't know if that's a bad thing, I guess would be my answer. And, and, you know, when you lose, if you didn't score enough, like that's a place you can look, but they probably were doing a poor job with their, their base concepts and a poor job with their, with their execution that, you know, that's kind of the boring stuff, but we needed to screen better and our stuff wouldn't work better. And we wouldn't have to talk about plays. So from a coaching standpoint, that's kind of, that's the first place my head goes in that.
1: Correct me if I'm wrong, but it's, it's more like you're saying you don't need to necessarily run as many plays because once you're in that situation, you should be able to know what you're supposed to do. It's like a feel, it's a recognition thing. You have to to recognize this defense is in this formation. We need to know how to attack that immediately. Every single possession. Yes. Is that, am I interpreting that correctly? Yeah.
2: And it's, and it's where guys are on the floor and it's why lineups construction is important. And, And in a five out, whether they're using the dunker spot or in the old spot in the natural, we still use their old spots and we we've incorporated dunker a little bit more, but when Brooke Lopez catches at the top, and Chris is on his right and Giannis is on his left, like he's got, he should have something and they should have something that they all kind of know. Okay, here's, this is what probably will happen here in either direction and you don't have to call it. But the next time down the floor, if if Connaughton is the one who trails and ends up in that spot and now he's got Chris and Giannis, like now two different things are happening that way. And it's not... It's automatic down screen, curl, pop, dribble, handoff. It's Chris is here and I'm playing with Giannis. I'm going to pitch it to Chris. I'm going to go see if I can get a pin down on Giannis to get him on a curl. If, or if I go to Giannis, I want to clear space to give him this right rail to go attack. So I'm going to slice cut or or we call it a slice cut, but cut underneath him to try to drag my defender through off of his guy's back. See if we can rip through, I'm going to rise up behind him. Like those things, our, we don't we would never consider any of that plays. But if we had to draw up, which I do, like I see stuff like that, I know it's not a play for them, but I make it a play for us because I can I've got five players that I can say, okay, this will be the honest person. And they run it and then it becomes a play for us. And then the next year it is just part of our offense. And I think when especially with five out, when there's a lot of versatility in your spots, you can do a lot more of that. Rely on pin down, you know, curl, top, punch into the post, later cut on the basket cut. Let's fill back like that stuff you don't have to do because everyone's kind of got a feel for who's next to them and what's the next thing to do and what their concepts are. And that becomes the hard part to guard because there's Connaughton's not going to do the same thing every time that he passes it to the right. If he if he does four different things, it becomes impossible to scout and say, Well, he's gonna do this in this spot. And, and that—that's where, to me, if, if you get really good at your concepts and your motion, you don't have to rely on, on calling plays out that got names that everyone in the gym can see, including the guys that have watched every game you've played this year. So, um, so that part, I think, ideally, you'd like to get to where you don't need them.
3: Every time, two things. One, every time I talk to someone who's very smart basketball, I realize I have so much to learn about basketball. Just like, oh, okay, well, that's really how I feel, exactly. Things well. <laughs> thrown out, like, oh my goodness. Um, and number two, I might have forgot. I had a really good number two. I think I forgot <laughs> yeah. it. Oh my It's goodness. the worst thing in podcasting. Yeah, I don't know. You'll get that. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll <laughs> find it eventually. Um, the next bud frustration, Rohan can't even believe me at this point. Um, we touched on this a little bit. I'm gonna. We had we had the media thing. We really touched on that, but the too much love for drop coverage, which I think you know, we touched on earlier that probably did adjust more than than he has said so far. But yeah. and we talked about this a little bit, but, but were you frustrated by what were you more frustrated by Bud doing so much drop or it becoming such a talking point to where I remember there were times last year in games where they maybe dropped half their possessions and you would yeah. still see every game, oh all they do is drop, all they do is drop, all they do is drop. And I would remember like I would be mad at Bud about something and I would have to like quote tweet and be like they actually didn't but this is why I'm upset this game yeah
2: yeah it's I, I remember being frustrated because I, well, only because I thought I got I thought it got really predictable and I think the good teams when there's an ability to go every you know seven game series where you can adjust and get comfortable with stuff I thought the predictability of it was the problem I didn't even think it was always the execution of it and I don't think it was the concept of it I think the idea of of contesting a guy from behind on a pull-up jumper with a seven footer in front of him, conceptually is not a, not an easy shot. I, think there, I don't think there's 75 guys in the league that feel super comfortable taking that 10 times a game. And I think everything we love about analytics, we should have loved drop coverage. Like it puts them in the spots that ideally you'd want guys to shoot at. And then there was teams that had guys that liked that shot that took advantage of it. There was teams that weren't that good that started hitting that shot on nights that, you know, games got uncomfortable that you felt it too. And I think, I, I definitely think he adjusted way more than he admits to on that and, and the versatility of that. And and actually, honestly, it taught me to have a lot of different ball screen coverages, um, even though we were, I thought we were really good at our, at our base coverage. And, and I think that, that probably was one as a coach when I was like, it seems like there's, at least something to switch it up here, and and you know there'd be a random switch, and Brooke would all of a sudden he'd have all of his limbs out, and you know he'd be stretched out, and it looked like the guy was uncomfortable. I'm like every once in a while, just just pop that out there and see what happens. Like, and I think that's the part of getting comfortable with year one, trying to prove he was you know the right guy for the job, and get them the culture of we're we're gonna win all these games, and and then getting a little more comfortable in his skin of you know, if we lose tonight in Portland, because we tried working on these things, it's not the end of the world. And I think, you know, that's a, that's a tough feeling being okay with things not going well, you know, and the prime time and the lights are on is, is not a comfortable feeling for anybody. Like you're not out here just, just, you know, kind of libbing it along the way, just to see how it goes. Like you want to feel prepared and go with what you want to go with and i think that that probably that maturation for him was probably a big step and you know as a coach that was one where i was like eh, there's there's a lot of ball screen defenses like just try something for two possessions see what happens
1: yeah it's it's sort of like uh, have you have you considered doing something else <laughs>
2: like, yeah just even
1: just a little bit
2: because <laughs> when it would happen accidentally it would kind of be fun you'd be like ooh. They're, here's a switch, or far. <laughs> Brooke is guarding at the top of the key now, and this guy's sizing him up. Like, let's see what happens. Like, this just do what was going to
1: happen. This <laughs> <way>. <laughs>
3: Brooke Lopez deceptively. Oh, uh, you beat me
1: to a Ty. Yeah. Oh, I, I was going to bring
3: that up. <laughs> I loved it. Um, but one I, I, I thing I we haven't seen. Thing. Rohan, I'm sorry. It's oh, okay. Go quick. Ahead. I think it really underscores, though, how hard the league is having a time with the replacement players, though. Just talking yeah. about Bucks, especially, but all teams, you know. You're, you, players are used to relying on each other being in the right spots and a uh, Bucks, especially a team that calls less plays now, just like, okay, Javante smart. You're going to play real minute, real rotation in this game. I mean, obviously the game where he and Mamu plays 44 minutes, that's just a free for all, but even right. the, like uh, the Raptors game, when, when he and Mamu are in the rotation, they've been around the team, but obviously they don't have the game reps that the Pat right. Cotidans and the other guys out have. So really it just underscores the difficulty of this season for everybody and for the Bucs.
2: Yeah. And, and teams that rely on continuity and, you know, the teams that have a big playbook, the old Flip Saunders playbook was 300 plays and guys would come in and they'd hand them the playbook and it's their job. They expected them to know it. And, you know, if you run a lot of sets, like you can get guys to memorize sets and probably jump in a lot easier than playing in flow and, and knowing what a good shot is and those things. So that's, that's a great point on what this season and why, why for me, this whole season is where are you at? Do you have your guys in the playoff starts? Are you at least playing one series at home? Do you maybe hopefully have the right bracket and the right teams that you kind of want to match up with? But ultimately I'm not sure now that they've won it that they really care. Yeah.
1: Uh, One more thing that we've seen for Bud over the past couple of years is no matter what happens in, uh, in the middle of the game, a lot of Bucs fans have seen the, the efficiency charts or efficiency. Wow charts for uh, Bud sideline out of bounds plays from first quarter through third quarter versus in crunch time, because every time in crunch time, not every time, obviously, but it feels like it's just Chris getting the ball in the corner, do something. I know there's a lot of other, like each action is different when getting him that ball in that spot, but it's just like every time it happens, they're like, oh, there's this again. Teams have snuffed it out in the past. Is he a little too reliant on, on that at the end of the game? Do you feel that way?
2: As someone who's much less smart than him, I'll say it makes me uncomfortable that <laughs> you see this, you kind of see the setup, and it's, it's if I'm thinking of the right one, because it's been, I mean, they've been running it now for three years, but the long curl that loops into the corner, and now it's a turnaround catch and shoot. Um, and there's, that one that that one I I think is probably fair and you know there's there's some other options again out there that probably a little bit cleaner but um but yeah you kind of have your pet stuff and sometimes sometimes you need someone to tell you (laughs) that it's not as good as you think it is and and I, I mean obviously they have a reason for continuing to go to it so there might be things that they like about it that we don't see but That's one, like, I have, I, for me personally, like, I, I think with, inbound plays are the easiest to scout because you can literally click the, the, the blob list and the slob list, we call them, and they'll just rattle them off and you see the setup and it takes 30 seconds to draw it up and have all of them on paper. So, for me, those are as much about disguise as they are about what the actual play is. and. When we get in games, I probably shouldn't say this, but the one we play, I'll be listening probably.
3: Coaches <laughs> because
2: we when we when we play in games where we're in control, almost everything we run out of the timeout. Everything, a lot of the stuff we run a timeout we'll never run again, and and it's a lot of times it's just messing around to see what might work, and then. And then probably not using the same again because it's literally bored, erased, see what happens, gone. Um, But especially with inbounds plays, it's as much about, okay, we have this setup and this is what we like to do. Let's use the same setup and do something different. So at least the next time they see it, they've got a guess between A and B. And if you can get C, D, E, and F over a 5-inch stretch because you got to mess around a little bit. Um, you know, a you might find something you like, but also you've disguised it, and that's and that's the one thing I don't like about that silent play is there hasn't been a, b, c, and d off of it, and, and it does feel like you just always kind of know this is what's coming.
3: Maybe it's like uh, we've done a rock, paper, scissors analogy on this pod before, but maybe it's like. You just you call out rock every time, and the the, the opponent's like, "There's no way he can't. Yeah. There's No way. There's no way it's going to be Chris in the corner." And then he takes the shot. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I do love as an aside the the what, what game? Do you remember what the game was, Rohan? The Giannis get the hell out of the way play. That was earlier this year, right? When they basically they inbounded to him at half court, and he just yeah. like steamrolled that. Yeah, way, that Charlotte? was the downhill. Was that Cleveland? I, Charlotte. Cleveland. Charlotte, Charlotte, Charlotte. Yeah. Downhill where he spun it off the bottom oh, of the rim. Was Charlotte, yes. And yep. I was like, that is such a fun out-of-bounds play because, A, we just haven't seen it. It's not the Chris play. And, B, it's like, how many other teams have a guy that that would make sense for? Like, maybe the Lakers have two of those guys, but there's not right. many guys in the league where it really is like, oh, yeah, we just need this guy to get ahead of steam, and that's the most yep. important thing. But that that made me go like, oh, maybe, maybe that's this year that what they're going to mess around with is the sideline out-of-bounds plays.
2: Yeah, and... I think like there's there's some times in coaching where stuff like that becomes like there was a stretch where the football play in college where guys would like everyone would line up out of bounds and all of a sudden they would break out to break a press yeah. um the nba now because you can go in the backcourt they'll t- they'll put a guy in the backcourt that forces the defense to go back there with them like there's there's things like that 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 kind of get innovated that then get get beat to death and i did feel like now that you say that 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 play was something that we would see more of and, and right i just don't think there's that many people on a downhill slope that that can put that kind of pressure on the rim so detroit's not looking at that and going oh we can use that <laughs> yeah. and that's no offense to detroit but um but it's that one was pretty unique so again that's a good example of like, he's not stupid, <laughs> yeah. but, um, it is, I just, I wonder about kind of the skies on some of those things.
1: Yeah. There's also that play against the Clippers. I believe it was last season, which ends with a Giannis game ceiling dunk where that was sort of like the tertiary outcome of the play rather than the primary, like the Charlotte one. Yeah. Where it ends with a Giannis punctuation dunk. What was that? That was last season, right? That wasn't I think it game? was. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, time is weird, but <laughs> no, it's just, it's fun to see the innovation with sort of the, uh, sort of the out of bounds plays, especially like you're mentioning going more to Giannis in these situations instead of going to Chris in these situations. It's, is that going to be what's tampered or not tampered with, but like sort of tinkered with this don't
3: year. Say, don't say tampering around. I past. know I just That's cost him a second round pick.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah,
2: That's the part I'm jealous of. Cause I do think they have with how many games they have, they just have so many opportunities to just, kind of throw something random in there that one of the assistants has been thinking about. Be like, Let's, let's try it. And then, yeah. you know, the, I wish, I wish we had a little more time personally game time for us to, to tinker like that.
3: And I think about, I think about too, just like player time, the difference, you know, Chris and Yada has been playing together for seven years now. Like that's always what gives, what kills me how you can build a sustainable college program because it's your event. Mm-hmm. It's their fourth year. Like yeah. that's that's what 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 is uh, is there a buck in their fourth year right now? Is War in year three? Yes, I think I don't know if there's anyone in year Dante three. is Dante yeah. year four Dante oh. might, Dante might yeah. be year four Dante yeah. di is the most seasoned possible vet. Like obviously it's not yeah. examples, but in time it, it is pretty wild to think about.
2: Yeah, you rebuild it so often and they do it with personnel obviously I and mean, older guys but it's new to the team. So that part's a little different. But yeah, by the time we get comfortable with them, they're ready to graduate and move on to the next thing. So that part of it, that's that's a challenge.
1: Yeah, how do you how do you sort of handle that sort of situation with the tons of turnover and stuff like that and especially keeping the winning the dominant winning ways How does that sort of translate year to year, roster to roster? I know like there's going to be incumbents year to year, which helps obviously when you're trying to build a program. But how do you keep that message going? You mentioned earlier that the message sort of dies at some points in the NBA. How do you keep that message going, like your personal message to your team?
2: Yeah, the good part about college, that's the good part about kids graduating is they're not there long enough to get sick of you. And I think that's the part with the NBA where – you know, guys that have been there for 10 years in a franchise, the same voice gets gets lost. And you know, I think in college the culture piece is probably a little bit bigger because you've got to recruit them to get there more so than the NBA does. And and but I think relating it back to the Bucks, like I think that's that's part of Bud's to me, charm with Giannis is that. They can bring in however many new guys, six, six or seven new guys last year with that core, and they have the same core values. They have the same culture, and the expectation we always say is, "You become us." If when you come here, you become us. We do not change. We're not going to change who we are to become what you are or what you need. And I think they do a great job of that. And that's that's our. I mean, that's probably the easiest way to say it with our college program is when we recruit them we have these values that our expectations of you need to be able to do these things and if you do these things you know I think we're, you're going to be successful and and I, I think the message I'm, I'm sure in free agency and through the draft is as they're interviewing these guys and figuring these fits out is we've got this core group of guys that believe in practicing this way preparing this way traveling this way and we need guys that kind of adhere to that or veteran guys maybe that haven't always been like that like boogie was uh, that is that are willing to become that when they walk through the door and, and i think you know he was a good example of what the bucks culture was if if you need a if you need an idea of what the bucks culture is how he came in and carried himself talked about the 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 program and the guys and the staff and all that is a perfect example. And that's in the short term, because we turn over so much, we have to stick to the things that we say are important to us and make sure we find people that believe in the same things. And I think the Bucs have done a better job of that in the NBA than most, at least since Giannis has been the guy. and, And obviously, he's a huge part of why that is.
3: It's funny that you mentioned the boogie thing because while you were talking, I was thinking about him and I'm not going to get into, I, I can't do any more. I listened to the last, I listened to the last one. <laughs> you take a break for now. Um, but I did think about that while you were, while you were talking about setting the values because that was one where he had talked about like the Bucks were pretty extensive. And I think interviewing him and working him out both aspects. And I was like, wow, so they are really committed. Like they're not just going to let, uh, maybe these 10 day hardships are different, but you know, with a guy on a, a, an NBA deal, it seemed like they were very upfront about setting expectations, making sure everyone was aligned, and I thought that was a cool look inside what that process is probably like for everyone they bring in.
2: And even the way they separated, it feels pretty amicable for what could have been a pretty tenuous situation. And and I do think the Bucs do a great job with agents; I think they're as good as most uh, in the league. But um, it seems with the way things kind of split yesterday that. They're all. They were all kind of on the same page of what everyone was looking for, and and there, it didn't seem like a surprise on either side. Even though we were all like, "What?" Yeah. And I think you know. Again, I think that's a credit to what they have culture-wise.
1: Yeah. So it's, it's it was definitely a divide. <laughs> it was definitely it, it caught us off guard. Yeah. <laughs> no, for sure. From the outside, for sure. Uh, it's just, uh, <laughs> oh boy, that was, that was an interesting podcast. <laughs> <laughs> that was, that was an interesting podcast. Um, um
3: co- I think yeah, we co- we've, I'll say yeah. coach, we've, we've kept you way too long. You've been very generous oh. with your time. Thank you so much for, for hopping on before we go here. When we have guests, we always ask, this is a little different. Usually it's podcasters or something. Is there anything you would like to plug or do you just have any last thoughts about the conversation here about, about coaching and about bud?
2: Uh, I personally don't because I coach Division three college basketball other than support women's sports and watch women's basketball. That's and a I good be, one. That's a really I think good. you'll be surprised um, if you appreciate the, the nuance, the X's and O's. I think the women's game has a ton of good basketball stuff that people are missing. But um, I really like the mid-range theory. And uh, since he's become a, a good friend um, through Twitter, I think the mid-range uh, the mid-range theory is, has helped with my analytics, and um, I think you know. I, again, someday I want to I want to talk about basketball more. I'm Jealous of you guys that you talk about it like this every day. So um, I just appreciate again letting a women's coach come out and talk basketball, and um, hopefully there was something that people liked from from us talking the coaching side because I I do think it's there's a lot of unfair criticisms of of bud and and just coaches in general that people just don't have a great feel for
3: and uh, just, I, just quickly yeah. the mid-range theory that's seth Partnow's book correct yeah. Yeah. yeah
1: yeah i know i personally learned so much like <laughs> i've been taking notes during like during the during the episode i have been taking notes. <laughs> like usually it's beforehand <laughs> <But> <laughs> i'm doing it during the fight i if i've learned a lot this is I'm not going to say it. That sounds too bad. No, it's good. Oh, uh, it's No, long no, no, lot, no, no, no. <laughs> I, re- I, realized, I realized what I was saying, so I caught myself. Uh, but I know I personally have learned a lot through this convers- conversation. Thank you so much for joining us. This was absolutely a pleasure. Hopefully, we can do this again sometime soon.
2: Yeah, that'd be uh, awesome. This is fun.
1: But yeah, thank you so much. Thank you to everyone for listening to this episode of the Eurostep. Make sure you leave a five-star rating on Apple, Spotify, wherever you can. Subscribe to the YouTube, Substack. follow us on social medias. Uh, go Bucks. We will talk to you next time. Thanks, guys.